Hi everyone, I'm Lindsay LaValle. Welcome to Rush Hour, the congestion of human trafficking in America. In this podcast, we will address the problem that is human trafficking, not only to spread awareness, but to share information that will help keep you and your community safe. Rush Hour is brought to you by The Wolf Group, powered by eTactics. Today we're joined by Sister Imelda Poole. Thank you so much for being with us, Sister. We really appreciate it. And we've met briefly in the past, and I just think the world of you. So I, I really am excited to have you on our podcast and allow our listeners to meet you as well. So thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. It's such an honor and a privilege to be with you today. Could you give us a quick history of your organizations that you've worked for and how you initially got into um, the anti-trafficking field? Yes, it's difficult to make it brief when it's 17 years. Yes. And I will go back and explain that I am a Mary Ward sister, uh, commonly known as Loretto in America. And in 2003, in fact, um, my congregation, which was founded by Mary Ward 400 years ago to respond to the greatest needs of the church in the world of today. And in that year, my congregation discerned with all of us that we should open a new community outside the boundaries of our provinces. So in England, after two years of careful discernment involving other international bodies in England, it came to us after two visits to Albania that we would go there. And now on the, the last visit, we went to visit the Archbishop of Tirana and we asked him, you know, what would be the greatest needs you would feel we should respond to in Albania? And to our surprise, he told us that there was a massive need to respond to the terrible treatment of young girls by traffickers who were taking these girls by speedboats across the Adriatic Sea to Italy, where they were being sold into the sex trade. And this was 2005 by this stage. So I found a, a course online at Rhode Island University, Your Beautiful Country, mm -hmm. and lovely Professor Donna Hughes was my tutor. So whilst I was, we, we came to Albania, Caritas asked us to partner with them, to work with them, to set up a shelter for these youngsters when they came back terribly abused and in trauma. And, and at the same time, I went online to do this diploma course and I was hugely grateful to the States for this training. It was fantastic. I had to do a lot of reading. I was in a private uh, circuit webinar closed group with six of us doing it for the whole year. And in the end, um, I came away, I would say initially with a baseline training, but I was then thrown at the deep end meeting my first traffic victims. I was then asked to coordinate 54 health clinics. I was all over Albania and I actually met traffic victims in the mountains, in the villages. They hadn't gone into shelters. It was very, very painful, really, contacts for me. The first one in the mountains was a beautiful young woman, tall, elegant, but covered in sores, which was a reaction of her body to the trauma of being trafficked in Italy. 
Her mother, having heard a terrible story, had had a mental breakdown and was in a mental hospital. Still is there, I'm afraid to say. This girl has got a life. She's come through. She's married with children and all is well. So the stories can be amazing. So over that time, which is now 17 years, I'll zoom in and briefly say uh, we set up a project for Roma as a congregation because I discovered a huge percentage were Roma, children and women, young girls, who'd been trafficked either into uh, begging on the streets and crime and also into the sex trade. So that was the first little initiative. And secondly, uh, in honour of our 400th anniversary, I came to really feel drawn to open a project for trafficked women. And we partnered with our gay organisation that helped me set up the Roma project. Mm -hmm. And I went with, with my lovely colleagues all over Albania to women's groups, which we, through Caritas work, I got in contact with the sisters were asking us to do more for the women and girls because it's a patriarchal society and they were very vulnerable to trafficking. So that went on for four years. And then in 2003, we founded our official NGO called Mary Ward Loretto, which is purely and totally uh, committed to the work against human trafficking. And we now have six advice and service centers around Albania. We cover what we call three steps program. One is direct action, where we have psychologists and social workers in the field in attached to our centers, working with statutory bodies, but doing what we call outside shelter, rescue, prevention, reintegration, and rehabilitation work. Secondly, we do prevention through economic and human empowerment. And thirdly, we'd call it democratization of Albania, civic education, empowerment of peoples and communities and statutory bodies to work with us to be more effective in this work against human trafficking. That's incredible, sister. Thank you so much for the work you do. I have to just ask you a personal question. How do you deal with this? Because this is trauma. I mean, I the first time I met you, I thought these girls are so blessed because you're so sweet and calming. Mm. The turmoil that they've been through just to meet you has to be such a just a calming presence. So what do you do personally mm. to take care of your own mental health? Lindsay, and that's a very good question. One of the kind of major criteria is that we all have supervision. So I have a very, very beautiful um, supervisor, non-managerial, who's got all the credentials for listening and he's a very good psychotherapist, but he's also qualified in non-managerial supervision. So he enables me to offload so that I'm, as it were, uh, emptied for, for the work. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm able to offload the grief and the pain because it is very intense. And I have to say that my spiritual life is crucial in all of this. And I have a very, very good spiritual director. And uh, also as an Ignatian woman, because we have the Jesuit constitutions uh, that are applicable to women. And uh, that Mary Ward founded us as an Ignatian congregation. And so our way of life is based on discernment and also on the the way of the spiritual exercises of Ignatius, which is really a process of entering into 
meditation on the life of Jesus with significant meditations that lead you to choices. And in all of these annual retreats that I make and my daily prayer, I move into very much the suffering of Jesus. Mm. I it just am led that way. And somehow that prayer of being with Jesus on the cross is is being with the girls and the the young children who are also treading that path. I do really fundamentally believe that every day is a day in God and God's direction is leading me on and the power of God. It's not just words. It's it's an experience. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that because I think, you know, a lot of people are in this form of work and it, it's intense. It's a lot to take on. And I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think a lot of folks will listen to this that work in this space and, and may be able to draw from that. So thank you. How has the anti-trafficking movement changed since you first began? Oh, that's a very, very good question as well. I was pleased with your questions. They're so able to trigger the reality of human trafficking. In fact, when I began, it was hardly talked about publicly. It wasn't much in the press. Even the Palermo Agreement hadn't been made. You know, that was in 2010. And so now we know there's hundreds of countries have signed up to that. It's not uh, fully comprehensive anymore of the massive, dastardly crime of human trafficking. But it, it is a help because it gives some parameters of what the crime is. Today, now, we could say that the difference now is it's organized into transnational international crime. Mm -hmm. In fact, what was always seen as the major one, drugs and weapons, is now being taken over by trafficking because they can get more money from selling people than a gun, if you like. Also, I think our world has changed. We've become much more consumerist greed is very much in our forefront, perhaps in the mind. The demand for cheap goods, cheap services, cheap labor is growing in our world. We've also got climate change, and this is leading, and, and more increasingly so, to many more natural disasters. And many trafficked victims are people who are running from war, or disaster, maybe even from such things as exploitation in the home, like domestic violence, not necessarily poverty, but sheer suffering, which leads to need to escape. And this has increased in our modern world. Uh, or I could say a lot more, but perhaps the recent and most dastardly development has been cyber trafficking which would never have gone on probably in 2005. Yeah, I think that, you know, even in the States, just the kids being home from school, from COVID and things of that nature have changed the dynamic even mm -hmm. more so, right, than even what it was before. So I can see that. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the gangs because that is also an issue in the United States where the gangs are getting out of the drug trafficking and, you know, the weapon trafficking and maybe not completely, but getting out of it and getting more into the human trafficking side, I think it's it's easier, right? I mean, if you get mm -hmm. caught with 
drugs or guns, then it's apparent. But if you just have a girl sitting in the car next to you, then they could be your sister, girlfriend, whatever. So it's it just makes it easier. And and again, you mentioned the, the demand and, and the the money to be made is great. So thank you um, for saying that. What demographic have you noticed are regularly victimized in this way? Some of the traffickers I've met in the prisons here were friends and neighbors of the family. They weren't in the transnational gangs. So they are vulnerable children, maybe, or young people who are groomed, but by often people that they know either, you know, a boyfriend who grooms them, also neighbors, neighbors big time in the villages who are trusted, and then they pass them on, sell them on to the trafficker who then takes them from one country to another, and they may be groomed to have a job, say, in France or wherever. So the trust is there, and they're given a passport and a phone and all the things that give security to a human being today. They could be children of poverty-stricken families who can't afford to feed them. This happened, this was the beginning of us knowing about cyber sex trafficking, mm -hmm. was when we had a training for our European Foundation on cyber sex trafficking, because we were beginning to hear it was growing in COVID. And we discovered that Filipino families were selling their children for sex online. And it was being bought by people in our own countries in Europe. And this was tracked down with IJM, which is International Justice Mission, which is a fantastic organization. We partnered with them to, to lobby for a change of law because the law in Europe actually gave more support to the, to the uh, perpetrator because of data protection than for the child. In fact, the EU was fast and within, I think, about six weeks, they put in temporary law to protect the children, and children were rescued. And sisters in the uh, Philippines took in the children that, that were rescued through IGM work. It was kind of very fast and active work during COVID, but, but horrendous. Also, so some of our sisters um, from Phoenix, say, in America, one of them in particular, is working on the borders of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And she's in the, the rescue work of traffic victims on the border and actually lives in a house for accommodation for sheltering victims. So that's also the problem is that waiting on the border, is a, they can be there a long, long time. And what is going on with those millions of people across the world who are waiting is horrendous. You wouldn't believe the crime that is committed on those borders because countries are not willing enough to rescue and save vulnerable people who need to migrate and need to be supported in the migration routes. So, you know, demography is massive. You know, it's, it's poverty, it's domestic violence, it's exploitation, it's all sorts of vulnerabilities, but it's always vulnerability because a trafficker will only go to the vulnerable because who would listen if they don't need to be rescued or need to survive? Do you see more labor trafficking or sex trafficking with the people that you work with? 
I think there's a great increase in labour trafficking. Mm -hmm. It's sex trafficking and exploitation is there in a massive way, probably 65% because the demand is still massive in the male population in particular, um, but for children too, boys and girls. But I think that the labour trafficking um, has implications not just for need because vulnerable people need money in their pocket Mm-hmm. So they need work and they will be vulnerable, therefore, to being trafficked into labour. But also, like I met a, a young lad in actually in, in, in Portugal and he was from a, an African country and he had been in the Ukraine with, and there were three of them in the Ukraine studying. Mm-hmm. And these three, uh, when the war broke out in their town, they weren't... Ukrainians, they were foreigners, um, but they knew they needed to get their papers, and the papers were in Kyiv. And when they were on the route to Kyiv, from where they had been studying, uh, they were caught by Russian soldiers. Now, this could be in any war, so I'm not focusing just on Russians, but the Russians caught them. Now, they, in effect, according to all the laws about trafficking, they trafficked these three vulnerable foreigners because they forced them to stay in where they were billeted, these Russians, mm-hmm. and they were made to do the dirtiest of work in the house. They were only given food once a day. They were only given 10 minutes for toilet once a day. And they were hardly ever able to sleep. They were cleaning. They were doing all the dirty work. Now, they only escaped uh, when the Ukraine soldiers recaptured that that patch. So war brings out the worst Mm. in humankind, and it's labor. That was labor trafficking, for sure. And we know ourselves right across the world that in the tourist industry, the um, fields, the agriculture industry, the building industry, the even basic car washing industry and nails and so on, that girls and young men are being trafficked. I mean, there are so many stories that we have knowledge of personally from people that we are caring for across Europe, but also here in Albania, is just remarkable of of how badly, badly treated they are in labor trafficking. And um, from poor housing, living in sheds, hardly being being treated like animals with their food and made to work hours beyond imagination with either no wage or hardly a pittance of a wage. And indeed, here in Albania, we could name two two sweatshops, we could call them, Mm -hmm. where their hours are terrible. The men have to leave work very soon because they're not given protective treatment. They're making shoes for the Italian high-class market. The the fumes from the treatment of the leather is more than the men can handle, young men. And their lungs affect them. Their lungs, they're they're really badly deteriorating for health, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and poor wage. Not classified as trafficking, probably, because, but it is, it is. 
children on the streets begging. If, I must say they've got rid of a lot of that here. They are protecting the children more than ever after a lot of protest. But we know in other countries that's going on. We've looked at India and you've got Udas there who's who's picking up the kids from the, from the brick-making factories where they're doing terrible work at the age of 8, 9 and 10. So it's this Asia's got thousands of children in slave labor. I think that you mentioned it before, but I think it's it, just the greed, the level of greed. My mother and I talk about it all the time, that if you could just, if we could do away with greed, that it would yeah. really do away with every other problem that we generally face um, in our world. And I think you're right. I think maybe the Amazon effect, or I don't know what it is that, you know, people want that instant gratification and cheap, you know, everybody wants everything cheap and fast. And I think it's it's just made an, a much larger issue where manufacturers are trying to find people to just make things cheaper or whatever. And then they're just preying on these people who, where there is such a need, you know, in their own lives. You said vulnerability, poverty, all of those things, they create just a feeder for these these manufacturing plants or farms or whatever. What demographics have you noticed when it comes to the traffickers themselves? Anybody could be a trafficker that you don't realize is, in other words, it's an ordinary man or woman in the street. Um, an example recently was somebody who was traveling in, in one part of the world on an airplane and a guy sat next to him and offered him a girl for sex because they'd got in a conversation to know that this person I knew was traveling for a few days and would be coming back to his place. And he was offered sex in a hotel that he could get him cheap girl. Oh and this person that I knew knew very much about human trafficking. So he decided to take a massive risk really and to go along with it in order to see he was a, um, in, in a profession that, that could make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that night, a, a girl was brought to him. And he, of course, protected the girl, mm -hmm. did discern that this was a real genuine case of human trafficking, called the police. And to cut to the quick, the police were extremely good in this country. They, first of all, looked at protection of the young girl and of the young man. But the long-term consequences of that brave action was that eight traffickers were picked up uh, from six countries. It was a transnational gang. But also many girls were rescued. So you see a guy on a plane. They're not hidden from your face. Mm -hmm. So it's when you look and see, like somebody once said to me, I see very unusual situations outside my supermarket of begging of, of foreigners. They're, they're refugees, they're migrants, but they're with kids and it doesn't seem right. And I think there's a pimp from our country looking on and I don't think they're free at all sitting outside our supermarket. She's probably right. What do I do, she says. Well, you, you can phone your hotline. You can keep yourself safe. That's the key. Keep yourself safe and do something about it. But don't just turn a blind eye if you see. In fact, keep looking and you might see more than you think. Yeah. I think that is a, an excellent, excellent point. And we've had a few of these conversations, but I don't think anyone has des described it in that way. So thank you. My mother asked me the other day, and my mother's 
a very sweet, gentle, kind person, but she's one of those people that like sticks her head in the sand. So she doesn't have to deal with all the awful things that are going on around her. And she's been listening to my podcast. And she said to me the other day, how do you not look at everybody different? And I'm like, I do look at everyone different. We have a good friend here at eTactics who spoke um, at our town hall that we had and she was trafficked by her brother, you know? So um, I mean, it's, it could be anyone, um, Absolutely. but you're right. Just, just looking up and we're all like this, right? We're all on our phones all the time. But if we, mm-hmm. we just put our phones down and look up and look out around us, we will yeah. likely recognize some of these situations. And mm-hmm. thank you to your friend who, who went with his instinct and, um, and went on with that, you know, interaction and helped those, those girls, but also got those guys, you know, mm-hmm. locked up. What facets do you think are necessary for training on human trafficking um, in general? Yes, I think that's a, another good question because I think, um, you know, a, a very, very often asked question when we're giving prevention trainings or just awareness raising trainings uh, is what can I do to help? And I think the first response to that question is always, for me, education. So um, these podcasts, I would say, are a great resource for people to listen to, to understand the whole breadth and length of the problem. Also, I I would say to read books and really educate in every way possible watch there were lots of films now um secondly when you have educated yourself and know about working with others and not on your own the whole key to networking is vital the whole um understanding that you have to keep yourself safe Mm -hmm. and you know, I was very naive at the beginning. Now I understand you have to keep yourself safe. Otherwise, you put others at risk. Sure. And then I think that a very important way of helping in prevention awareness raising is uh, to work with the press. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you know enough and have enough stories, and I would say stay with the real, you know, mm-hmm. uh, always. Don't don't go into big exaggerations. Stay with the real. And, and if you don't know anything other, don't go there. You know, just stay with the real. But uh, be part of advocacy groups for law change, say, for instance. We know, say, in the UK and across Europe, the law, the Modern Slavery Acts and so on are not good enough. They're not victim protected they're not trauma informed properly they're not based on human rights law you know they're they're outdated we know so much we can see how they're not supporting the victims and survivors and they're not survivor centered you know so all of those things the other area that i think needs a lot of addressing is the whole banking system Mm. and i think money laundering is out of control now because there's lots of tax-free havens. Also, people are very savvy how to share their spoils and open little bank accounts everywhere. And people are all part of this, again, chain gang, really, of, of systems. So 
you may be in a, 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 a group which is part of the money laundering group. You may be part of the journey group. You may be part of the overall, I mean, but there are many thousands and thousands of people in this crime of human trafficking at different levels. So the banks have to be much more savvy, but also the whole capitalist, I'm not against capitalism such though there's part of me that is, but the whole problem with capitalism is that it's it's based on profit. Mm -hmm. And the profiteers are the shareholders, basically, of the investors. And if the shareholders are not ethically, conscience-wise geared, then they're going to just grab all the money, aren't they, right. instead of making it a social economy. So a good percentage of profit should go into the social economy to prevent human trafficking. Agreed. And it's just not happening. So really, you know, prevention is, is in many fields, we need the vulnerable to be economically employed, economically empowered. Right. So they don't be, they're not vulnerable. So there has to be sharing of resources to build up an economy where everyone has a fair chance for good work. So they don't need to do scary risk-taking actions that are just because they want some money in their pocket, mm -hmm. which is what millions are doing on yes. the move. You know, that's what it is all about money. Yeah, one hundred percent money. There's no yeah. other reason for trafficking. Mm -hmm. Just yeah, it's greed, and I think that's. I think that's a great point. And I, I say it, I've said it a million times probably that education is going to be the best way to prevent human trafficking. But I think educating from a young age as well, I think this is something that should be taught in schools. If for no other reason, then you prick that part of empathy in that child's heart so that they don't grow into someone who would ever traffic another person, right? Or pay for sex or pay for mm -hmm you know, services that are, are being rendered by a trafficked person. So if any of this would resonate with someone listening to our discussion today, what's just some advice that you might give to that person? If they're in a comfort zone and they're not already trafficked to another place, mm -hmm. but they're being used in what we call internal trafficking, mm -hmm. And they have access to their comfort zone, maybe, maybe not. But if they do, then they'd go to their comfort zone and tell them, get themselves quickly out of that situation. We've had situations here where a couple of girls I've, I've actually come across, and they've gone to the church, and we met them in the church. It was a safe place, and we've got them out of their trafficking environment. This was domestic labor, horrible, really horrible treatment. Um, and they went into a shelter here. But the, the other uh, area that is an obvious one, really, is that uh, wherever you are in the world, there is a hotline. Mm -hmm. And if they have access, of course, they'd have to have, have access through phone or, or some kind of internet to be able to phone a hotline. But every country, every region, there are now millions of hotlines, you know, through all sorts of agencies and things. So you only need to go to human trafficking hotline and then look up your country. If you went to Renata website, we have, we're in 31 European countries and we have a hotline for every single country. 
But um, so that's another uh, way in which a, a victim can get help, if you like. So one of my goals, sister, for this podcast is to educate what we like to call Main Street. So just normal everyday folks um, like my parents are, who are in rural Ohio and may not have ever even heard of human trafficking before. So if you had just a piece of advice for Main Street, what would that be? If we could all base our whole lives on kindness, compassion and empathy, and really let that be our not just way of life, but our model for others, not to put it on, but just to be that kind of person who's kind and compassionate, then maybe in our little ways we can transform our society little by little because at the heart of all human trafficking is a lack of that. Sure. You know, we've, we've lost compassion, we've lost empathy. So, and I think that how that could maybe come about and transform our world is if if we from birth through to death stayed with the real i've mentioned that before but if we really even in our dreaming stayed with the real and was faithful to the real and honored the real and was loyal to that then i'm sure that love and kindness and compassion would come forth from being in touch with the real. Education and lobbying and so on could be kind of putting a layer over what's real. But it has to begin with me, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Honour yourself by loving who you are and, you know, really acknowledging the need for change because we all need it all of us sure. little by little and that in itself will then lead to genuine uh mission and compassion and based on that compassion and love and it's just going to have a snowball impact for sure right i yeah. think that's a beautiful thought i i just am in awe of you sister i <laughs> the first the first day we met, I was weepy all day because I'm just so impressed. And you're just a light in this world. And and I just know, again, that these, these individuals that you encounter are just so blessed by you. And what a, a blessing that has to be. I mean, you are just, you're just such a calming force for them where everything else in the world is around them has been raging. So thank you for that. And oh, thank you, Lindsay, for those kind words. It's very encouraging. And you're like uh, the Holy Spirit for me, moving me on. Mm. Well, thank you. This is this mm. has been so amazing, and I I just really love you and appreciate you and the work mm. that you're doing. And um, I want to thank everyone for listening, and please stay safe. <laughs>